0: As I said earlier, I just picture in my mind Paul there in a Roman prison cell. And as he's watching the guards and watching the soldiers, the Holy Spirit using that as an object lesson and pointing out to Paul each and every article of their armor and making a spiritual application. And keep in mind that Paul is not just writing this as he would a journal. Paul is not just imagining any of this. These words, every word, is inspired by God himself. He is directing Paul to write these words. Every soldier in the army considered the breastplate to be an indispensable part of the armor and they wouldn't even think about going off into battle without it. Uh, there are many different types that I'm sure that they used. They they claimed that the most common one was a molded metal breastplate that covered the torso from the neck down to the upper part of the thighs. And all, that way covering all of the vital uh, organs of the body and, and hopefully preventing a uh, a fatal wound. Uh, you'd be surprised what, uh, uh, what a breastplate of armor like that could stop. It's really rather amazing. Uh, we think about body protection today for our troops, and uh, even denim, something as light as denim, imagine that, can have a tremendous effect on a bullet. And so you can well imagine that this armor, uh, how it would serve its purpose against the sword or an arrow or something of that nature, a, a knife or, or whatever. And Paul tells us the breastplate here, notice, was to the soldier uh, what righteousness is to the saint. So that's what we want to think about tonight, the breastplate of righteousness. And maybe the best way to approach this is to to ask and answer three questions. First of all, most obvious is, what is it? What is it? Well, it's very obvious here that it's righteousness. That's what it says. It's a breastplate of righteousness, but... What does that mean? What does he mean by righteousness? There's only three possibilities. There are those who interpret this to mean integrity or self-righteousness, and they say, that's you know, we put that on our integrity on or our self-righteousness, but that's absolute foolishness because the Bible tells us that we have no righteousness of our own. Many different verses alluding to that. All of our righteousnesses, and that's in the plural, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, the Bible says. So we can rule that out. It's not speaking about integrity. Others claim that it has to do with what is called imputed righteousness. Now, I want you to really listen carefully to the first, well, I hope you listen to all of it, but especially the first part of the message, because we're going to talk about imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. And and it's crucial that we understand the difference. And there are those that say this refers to imputed righteousness. Now, the word imputed means to give to or to attribute or to, to place, uh, to one's account. For example, if I deposited a thousand dollars in your account, uh, that money would become yours. You could use it as, as you choose. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, He imputes His righteousness Unto us. And that's very clear back in Romans chapter number 4, for example, if you'd like to turn there. Notice in verse number 3, it says, For what saith the Scripture? I'm getting just a little echo, Crystal. Can you turn that down just maybe a little bit? Verse 3, Romans chapter 4. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is, notice this again, is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So when I receive Christ as my Savior, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to me. That is, it is put to my account. So in that sense... In what the old-timers called the judicial reckoning of God, in God's reckoning, I now am righteous in Christ. Uh, he looks at me as though He looks at His own dear Son. Think about it. The righteousness of Jesus Christ becomes mine. now. Some say this is what it has reference to, that we've got to put on this righteousness, that is the imputed righteousness, that we've got to receive Christ as our Savior. But that can't be what Paul has in mind here. And there are at least three reasons for saying that, because number one, this is something that God does for us. It's not something we can do for ourselves. God is the one that imputes the righteousness. You can't do that. Number two, this is something that never changes. You can't put on imputed righteousness and take it off. That's why we believe in the security of the believer. Once saved, always saved, whatever you want to call it. Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. You see? And so it's not something you put on. You can't be saved today and lost tomorrow. And like you've heard me say a a jillion times, if you have eternal life today and you lose it tomorrow, it wasn't eternal yesterday. And so it's not something you put off and put on. Number three, this alone, imputed righteousness, salvation, whatever you want to call it, this alone does not guarantee victory on our part. Many saints have sinned grievously. Now, as the children of God, John makes it very clear that we do not live in habitual bondage to sin, but make no mistake about it, just because you are a child of God, it does not mean that you are exempt from sin. Listen, even the most horrible, terrible kind of sin that you can imagine, Given the right circumstances and you in a certain frame of mind and the right time and everything, there's nothing that you might not do. And if you're here tonight and you're thinking, oh, I'd never do that. Others might do that. I'd never do anything like that. May I remind you that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So when Paul speaks about the breastplate of righteousness, then he's not speaking about imputed righteousness. What he's talking about is imparted righteousness. And and, and again, this is something we don't hear much about today, but many years ago, preachers oftentimes spoke about imparted righteousness. And what they meant by that was this. It is a quality of righteous living that comes from God working in our heart to do His will and His good pleasure. That's imparted righteousness. A work of God in our heart. It's what God does as I conform my ways to His will. You see, when it comes to imputed righteousness, there's nothing you can do. That's entirely a work of God. You can't save yourself. Now, when it comes to imparted righteousness or if you want to call it practical righteousness, that's something that God is demanding from you. And that's exactly what Paul had in mind. For example, if you go back to Philippians uh, in, in chapter number 3, or I should say ahead to Philippians chapter number 3, and listen to what Paul writes beginning in, uh, I believe it's about verse number 10. Notice he says, "...that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering, and being made conformable unto His death." Unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, n- notice here, Paul is not saying in any sense of the word there that he's making an attempt to save himself. He's already saved. He's already received Christ as his Savior. He's already a minister of the Word. What he's talking about here is his manner of life, So when we speak about imparted righteousness, we're, we're not talking about something that we do apart from God. That would be self-righteousness. We're talking about what God enables us to do as we yield ourselves to Him. Galatians 5, verse number 16, Paul says, "...walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh." Then he said in Romans six and verse eighteen, "Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness." Now that being true, then we should strive to bring, to bring ourselves. Let me rephrase that: we should strive to bring our state into conformity to our standing before God. You see, my standing before God is one of perfection because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to me. So as I think about my manner of living, I should be striving to bring my present state into my standing before God. So this is the armor that he's talking about. He's talking about Again, I say, what God does in the life of a believer as he's working out his own good will, as we yield ourselves to him, God begins to bring this out. And notice, this is our responsibility to put this on. It's not something that God does regardless of what we do. It's something that we do. That brings us to the second question, not only what it is, We've, I think, established the fact that it has to do with imparted righteousness. But how do we put it on? Being considered righteous in the sight of God is one thing. Actually, and by the way, that's the main thing. But actually being righteous is another thing. Remember there in Romans chapter number 4, when Paul was speaking about Abraham, he said God counted it righteousness unto Abraham. In other words, God just considered it so. And that's why we use that phrase, judicial reckoning. God said, okay, I count you, consider you to be righteous. So that's the way that God looks at us. But Abraham was not perfectly righteous in any sense of the word by way of his practical everyday life. Wouldn't you agree with that? Because he made plenty of mistakes. He's done some really dumb things, in fact. Are you with me? So, when we talk about this matter of imputed righteousness, that's what God does. But when we talk about the imparted righteousness, it has to do... With what we do. The first has to do with our standing. The other has to do with our state. The first never changes. The second does change because today I might be living righteously and tomorrow I might be doing otherwise. The first, the first by the first, I am delivered from the penalty of sin. By the second, I'm delivered from the power of sin. Maybe I should say I'm being delivered from the power of sin. Imputed righteousness delivers me from the penalty of sin. I'll Listen, I'll, I'll never, ever, ever have to answer for my sin in the sense of God judging me. I'll never be punished for my sin in that sense. That's why we can rest assured that we're going to heaven and not going to hell. Because all of those sins are under the blood. Now, that doesn't mean we don't sin, right? When we sin... We do not lose our standing before God. That is permanent. But because we sin, it hinders our fellowship with God, and it also requires God to take corrective measures. We call that chastisement. The correction of children. And that's precisely what God does. In fact, the Bible says that if we be without chastisement, and the Bible uses the word bastard, speaking about illegitimate, it says that if we be without chastisement, we're bastards, we're not sons. And, and so, you know, I, young people, I hope you're not snickering or something, because the word bastard is not a, not a vulgar word. I understand a lot of people have used that in a vulgar sense. But it's a legitimate word speaking about something that is illegitimate. And so, as a child of God, I can't live any way I want and get by with it. I'm not going to lose my salvation. That is, I'm not going to lose my standing before God but I'm sure going to lose my peace and my joy. And that's why you hear people say, well, if I believe what you Baptists do, once saved, always saved, I just sin all I want to. My answer is, we do. We sin all we want to and more than we want to. We don't lose our standing before God, but we lose our peace and our joy in our relationship with God. So, imputed righteousness, I'm delivered from the penalty of sin. But when it comes to imparted righteousness, what God does in my life in making me the person that I need to be, that enables me to be delivered from the power of sin. That's why the Bible says we're more than conquerors. We don't have to live a crushed down, defeated life. God has provided everything we need to live victoriously. So whenever he speaks about this breastplate of righteousness, he's talking about imparted or practical righteousness. But we're still faced with this question, how do we put it on? It says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Since it's not self-righteousness, then it must come from God. Since it's not imputed righteousness, then it requires a responsibility on our part. So how do we put it on? Well, here's the answer. True righteousness of life is that which is produced by the Spirit of God as we yield ourselves to His control. So if I'm going to put on the breastplate of righteousness that Paul is speaking about here, then I must surrender myself to God, yield myself to God. Precisely what Paul said in Romans chapter number 12. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You see, that's exactly what he was talking about there. So in, in doing that, as I yield myself to God, to His control, you might say we could use the use the same analogy when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit. As I am filled with the Holy Spirit, and let me remind you that word "fill" there has to do with being controlled by. Be not drunk with wine; that is, don't be under the influence of wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. And that word "fill" three different times is used in reference to 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 a secular group. Uh, in fact, in one instance, is a mob at Ephesus. It's talking about the whole city being filled with anger. In other words, they're controlled by anger. So when it comes to the filling of the Holy Spirit in my life, it simply means that, that I have yielded myself to His control. Turn over to Romans chapter number six. There's something so very important here, and I wish I had time to really go into more detail uh, concerning this matter, but, but I want you to notice Because here is God's formula for victorious living. Notice in verse number 6, and I've circled certain words in red, and I'll mention those as I go through it. Verse 6, knowing. I've circled that in red in my Bible. Knowing this. In other words, there's something that we've got to know if we're going to live victoriously. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now look at verse number 11. And in verse 11 he says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The first word is knowing, the second word is reckon. We reckon. We just consider it to be so, in other words. Now, notice the third word in verse number 13 neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Here it is, but yield yourselves unto God. As those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. Unto God. So those three words, knowing, reckon, and yield, those three words describe for us how it is that we're able to live victoriously in a very, very, very corrupt and sinful world. But notice it ended up with that word yield and that brings us right back to our thoughts here about how we put on the breastplate of righteousness. The product of doing, of of doing that, putting on the breastplate. The end result of the product of that is what we are protected, right? In other words, this isn't just a uniform that that you put on that serves no purpose. Uh, You know, it's 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 not just cloth. Uh, It's not something that you know, that wouldn't do some good. Are are you with me? It's one thing to put something on by way of decoration. It's another thing to put on something that's really going to help. For example, whenever our troops put on those flak jackets and what have you, they've got all kinds of pockets and so on and so forth, but you can put the actual jacket on and it might look good. You can put all kinds of patches on it, but until you put those little ceramic doodads in it, you're not safe. Are you with me? You've got got to have the whole thing on for it to be helpful. So when we talk about the breastplate of righteousness, understand, and we'll talk more about it in just a minute, understand that we put it on in order to be protected. So, again, let's go back to what we're talking about. How is it that we are protected from the attacks of the enemy? We're protected by putting on the breastplate, which means that we yield ourselves to God, surrender ourselves to God, and as we do, the Holy Spirit begins to work in our life and to produce those Christ-like virtues that are often referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. So when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and those other six things there... None of those are things that we do in and of ourselves. Those are things that God does in our life as we yield ourselves. So it's not a matter of us changing so that we'll be in the will of God. It's a matter of God changing us into His likeness. But here's the end result of that. protection. We are protected as we walk in the Spirit. We are protected when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, which implies that we're living the life that God intended. When we do that, we are protected from the attack of the enemy. And that's why I think old George Truett, many, many years ago was maybe the first one that made this statement. In fact, he had a sermon about the will of God, and he mentioned three things about God's will. He said God's will is always right. Always. The second point was God's will is always best. It's, listen, it's not just right, it's always best. I, I wish people could understand that. When God says, don't do this, God's simply saying, don't you hurt yourself. It's best for you. The third point was this. God's will is not only right. God's will is not only the best. God's will is safest. The safest place on this earth for you to be is right smack dab in the center of God's will. When we are there, believe me, absolutely nothing can happen to us that God does not allow in our life and use for His own good. Now we can talk about not just the protection of being in His will, we can talk about the provision of being in His will. Remember what He said there in Matthew chapter number 6 and verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. So there you have it. For our supplies, for our strength, for our protection, and everything we need, we must put on the breastplate of righteousness, and God produces Christ-like virtues that protect us from the enemy. I want you to know that you are on dangerous ground when you're out of the will of God. So we know what it is, and now we know how to put it on, right? Right? We put it on by just simply surrendering ourselves to God's will or being filled with the Spirit, allowing Him to have control of our life. Now, the third question is this, and we've already touched on it just a little bit, but we, i only elaborate a bit more, and that is, what does it do? What does it do? Well, the soldier's breastplate protects him, as I said. That's exactly what righteousness does for the saint. You know, in the ancient world, the people always associated the various organs of the body with the innermost feelings and emotions. And that's why you, when you read in the Bible, you read about the heart or the bowels or the reins, which which are the kidneys, and you read about these inward organs of the body, and it's always associated with man's emotion, his affections, his desires, and his conscience. That's what it's talking about. Now, think with me for just a little while. In putting on the breastplate of righteousness, we put it on in order to be protected and, and notice what is protected. Our emotions, our affections, our desires, our conscience. You see, Satan knows how we are affected in those areas. And believe me, he brings, he brings all of his power into play against us in these areas to accomplish his evil purposes. And that's why we have to be protected from Satan's assaults against us. And the only protection that's going to get the job done is the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness protects us from being led astray by our feelings and desires. Feelings are normal. They are natural and they are good. Feelings are a part of our Christian experience. Uh, Back many years ago, and I made reference to... Earlier, when I was talking about how we've been spoiled by all of the things we've got and so on and so forth, but uh, back many years ago, the preachers that we would call the old-timers, strangely enough, many of them were against any display of emotion. I think Baptists caught that disease, by the way, Uh, because it seems like most Baptists today are scared stiff. You know, to say "Hallelujah," "Amen," or "Glory to God," or clap their hands, or stomp their foot, or do anything that's a display of emotion, and and, and I think that's horrible. It's terrible. I believe it was Whitfield that wrote the book, and I wish I, I see uh, what is the book? Chris, help me out here. Affections, affections, uh, na- no, godly affections. That whenever the listen back during the Great Awakening here in America. George Whitfield, God is using him mightily. And believe it or not, here in the middle of all of this, their most severe critics were religious people. Uh, people professing to be Christians. And, and their, their uh, answer for the revival that was taking place, oh, that's just a bunch of emotions. It's just all a show. And so he wrote a book. In fact, I have it. I've got the old original one, and I've got some that have been updated and edited and so forth. i got two copies of that. But the whole book was written in defense of emotions. Emotions are good. God expects us to be emotional people. But we are easily led astray by our emotions. Our emotions, our desires, our appetites, while those things are God-given and they're good and they are to be regulated by the Holy Spirit, we must not allow them to control us. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote these words many years ago. He says, if we never felt anything in connection with our faith, then we do not have a true faith. You cannot really believe in this great salvation without feeling something. Well, I agree with that. How in the world can you claim to love the Lord and how can you claim to, to be appreciative of what God has done and how can you claim to, you know, to, to be heavenly minded and think about all that you have as being a joint heir with Jesus Christ and not get emotional about it? I don't understand that. Just boggles my mind how men can set through one service after another, after another, after another. Listen, I, I I know some members of this church that I've known for twenty years, and I've never heard them one time ever say Amen or Hallelujah or praise the Lord. And I got to tell you, I think something's wrong in their life. I don't mind saying that. I know. Listen, we're, we don't all have the same makeup. I understand that. Some of us are more emotional than than others. I understand that, and we see a difference in that. But surely there ought to be some time that we get emotional about the things of the Lord. You know, it's kind of like the old saying. You know, we we go to the ball game and yell like Comanches, and come to church and sit like wooden Indians, and. Something wrong with that. Somebody says, oh, you know, I'm just not the emotional type. Oh, You let them get in front of the TV and their favorite team is playing ball and they just go berserk. And I think to myself, not the emotional type, huh? Really? And you see, it's not a matter of being the emotional type. It's what it is that rings your bell, what it is that melts your butter, what it is that makes you happy, what it is that gets you excited. So in case you didn't know it, I think that emotions are very, very important. But I've said all of that to make this point, and that is, don't you dare be led astray by your emotions. We live in a day and an age where it seems to be the philosophy is, well, if it feels good, do it. Do it. I mean, God gave you those desires and you ought to just, you ought to just fulfill them. I've, uh, many of you heard me say again and again and, you know, sometimes I've wondered if I ought to even say it because I'm always fearful that somebody is going to misunderstand it. But hopefully you won't. Before I was saved, I acquired a taste for beer that has never gone away. I don't, I don't drink anymore. The only time that I know of that I drank a, a couple of beers after I was saved, one time I had a horrible toothache and I, I confess, I stopped and got a couple of beers and, uh, and it even helped. But I shouldn't have done it. Believe me, the toothache was nothing compared to the pain of my guilty conscience. And so you've heard me say, to this very day, there is nothing on this earth that tastes better as far as my palate, as far as my taste buds. Nothing tastes better than beer. Nothing. I mean, that, that taste for it is still there. But I don't have a right to say, well, you know, God gave me the ability to taste and God gave me my appetites. By the way, just just take this analogy another step. God gives us, you know, sexual appetites. and That's normal, you see. But that doesn't mean that we can go out here and live like a hound dog or an alley cat or something and just do whatever we want to do. So our appetites may be God-given, our feelings might be God-given, but they must always be regulated by the Word of God, always. There are some religions that are, it seems to me, literally based on this feel-good stuff. And that, that's all the people want. They go to church and all they want is, is a preacher to make them feel good. They don't care about the doctrinal content of the message. They don't care if he's accurate in his interpretation of the Scripture or not. All they want is just give me something to make me feel good. Tell a few jokes. Get me laughing. Tell some sob stories. Make me cry. Make me feel good. Pump me up. Make me think I'm a champion. That's it. Now you're with me, aren't you? You know what I'm talking about. It's emotion. It's feeling. That's all that it is. It's shallow. And God tells us that we are to preach the Word. So, when I think about so many that have been destroyed by becoming subservient to their feelings, they become enamored, as it were, with their own experiences. I mean, listen, it frightens me. And whenever, especially when I see it happen in the lives of people that I, I care about, the protection against all of this is the breastplate of righteousness. Unless we put on the breastplate of righteousness, our feelings will control us instead of us controlling them. Our desires will conquer us. Our will will corrupt us, our conscience will condemn us. So the only protection I have is to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Going back to what Paul said, walk in the Spirit. And what? And you'll not fulfill. You'll not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. So the means whereby that I can overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil, the three enemies that we all face, the means by which I am able to defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil is the breastplate of righteousness. I am protected when I yield myself to God and God begins to produce in me the likeness of His Son. By the way, that's what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is not about us struggling to be like Jesus. The Christian life, let me give you a definition of it. The Christian life is the life of Christ reproduced in the child of God by the Spirit of God. That's what the Christian life is all about. You see, He's always the change agent. He's the one that makes the difference. And a lot of times, you know, somebody has said, "Well, I got saved and I quit drinking. I got saved and I quit this and I quit that. And I, I, I got saved and I made all of these changes." You know what I have to say is, I got saved and the Spirit of God began to change my life. I couldn't listen. I couldn't do it. And I got news for you: you can't either. None of us are strong enough, or smart enough, or determined enough that we're able to conquer sin. We must always be totally dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me sum it up like this. Aren't you glad that God has made it possible for us to live victoriously? We don't have to become casualties. We don't have to go down in defeat. Remember, Paul said what? Stand. Stand. That's the position of a child of God. Stand. Don't you fall. Don't, Don't you lie down. Don't you quit. Stand. How do we stand? We stand by putting on the whole armor of God. You see, while God has provided what we need for a victorious living, we have to appropriate what God has provided. Yeah, I mean, if I just sit back and I, I study and get the Bible out and I start memorizing Scriptures and I start studying the Bible, you know, that's well and good up to a point. But that's not going to protect me until I begin to conform myself to what the Word of God says I don't have any armor on. So it says, I yield myself to His control, and He begins to produce these changes in my life. Then He enables me to stand up against my enemies and to live victoriously. That's true for every single child of God. We don't have any super saints. Never has been any super saints. We're all just sinners saved by grace. That's all we are. Absolutely nothing in us, nothing about us to merit salvation or the blessings of God. It's all because of Jesus. But when God... Tells us over and over again, I have provided this and I have provided that. I have provided the means that you can live victoriously, and would we not be fools to refuse to appropriate what God has provided, knowing, knowing that His will is right, His will is best, and His will is safest. So tonight. If you're here and you're not in the center of God's will, let me encourage you, beg you, beseech you, whatever I've got to do to whatever you do, just yield yourself to His control. Forget about what you want. Forget about what you think you need. Forget about what you think you want to do. And just discover the will of God and do it. So I know where God wants me to be and by His help. Through His grace, I'm going to just yield myself totally to Him. Put my life in His hands. Think about your life being like a blank piece of paper. And He's the great composer. And you give Him the blank sheet of your life. And you just let Him write on there whatever He wants. Believe me, it will be a whole lot better than anything you could ever put down because he knows what he's doing. It goes back to that old saying that if we were as smart as God, we would want for ourselves exactly what God wants for us. Because He never makes any mistakes. Let's stand. Father, we've been reminded tonight of how weak and how helpless and hopeless we are without You. And how thankful we are tonight that You have made available... Exactly what we need. We live in a rough and tumble world. There's sin all around us. And enemies, even that we can't see, powerful enemies that we could never defeat. And yet we know that because of You that we are enabled to live victoriously. And so tonight, help each one of your children here this evening. Put on the breastplate of righteousness by yielding themselves to your control. Work in our lives in such a way that others will see Jesus in us, for we ask it in His name. And now, as we lift our voice in song, it might be that God's speaking to your heart about some part of your life tonight, or it might be maybe you just want to come and pray. I don't know. You don't have to say a word to me, but let God have His way while we sing. tonight. We don't always have the opportunity to do this, but maybe you're here and there might be a prayer request that we don't know about you that you want to share with us, or maybe you're here tonight and maybe there's something going on in your life. Maybe God's really working in your life. or What, what is God doing in your life? What, what if your next door neighbor asks you that question? They just come up and said, Aren't you a Christian? You said, Oh, yeah, I, I've been a Christian for years. And what if they said, What's God doing in your life? Wonder what you'd say. What would it be? Oh, Mary, I'm sorry. All right, anybody else?
1: Yeah, I'd like to say a few words. I I laughed at one, but I understand that I did I said a few words, yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the old gal sitting back there and had a lot of problems over the past few months and it's been first one thing and then another. And uh recently she got aggravated at a doctor's office because she had sat there two hours after her appointment and
0: it had gone. Amen, hey, I'm on party. your side. <laughs> Wonderful, the difference that she's saying. We think God was involved in that, otherwise, we'd still be struggling. She told me one time, she said, I'm not the one that takes all those pills. So I told her recently, I'm not the one that
1: takes all those pills. <laughs> <laughs> we the Lord for her condition.
0: Amen. Okay, Mike. Amen. Amen. All right. Anybody else, Mike? Amen. I hope I remember that because next week, Lord willing, uh, I almost did it this morning, but, but I plan to preach a message entitled, you know, we all talk about the calm before the storm. I'm going to preach about the storm before the calm, and I'm glad you said that. That's a, a wonderful illustration this old trouble world like a whirlwind, but God keeps us right in the eye of the storm and wow, it's wonderful what he can do. Okay, anybody else? Anybody else before we before we pray? All right. Oh, I'm sorry. Good to have you folks here tonight. Amen. Amen. Hey. Awesome. Amen. on the 31st we're celebrating our first anniversary back. Awesome. The Lord is is good and gracious and we do fall into sin, but as long as
1: we get up and this Yeah, amen. continue on with the walk
0: and yes. Amen.
1: That's awesome.
0: Amen. (laughs) That's awesome. If I didn't have any other reason to be here tonight, you know, if I knew that was all that I was going to get out of making the trip over here and being in the service, brother, that made it all worthwhile right there. That's great. Thank you. All right, anybody else before we pray? I just I just got a good book and good people praying for me, and you folks are the ones that make the difference and that lady over there you all are the ones that thank you for your kindness all right I'm glad to have Brother Chris here and leora <laughs> Ora Lee kind of sounds like a brand of cookies are there cookies about that is there such a thing as <laughs> Oh well, we're so glad to have them here, and they're—they're—I tell you that they've been a blessing, and we love them. And we're going to have Brother Chris ask him to lead us in prayer as we close tonight.